Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing our series called The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men, and we'll be looking at a message entitled Understanding Christian Freedom. So let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfound. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 17. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You know, comedian Emo Phillips once said, I'm not a fatalist, and even if I were, what could I do about it? (laughs) Well, most of us find that the idea of fatalism quite unattractive, but freedom is very attractive. Freedom is the ability to do and think and to act just the way we want to. And freedom is the ability to change things, especially the direction of our own lives and the lives of the people around us. It is, in some sense, the ability to take control of our own lives and the direction of our lives in the future. Now, you can't read the New Testament without bumping into the theme of freedom over and over again. For instance, listen to Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. And then Galatians 5.13, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Or listen to Romans 8.21, The freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, there's no doubt about it that the, the ancient Christians in Corinth majored on the message of Christian freedom. In fact, they had developed a saying, Everything is lawful for me. So as we have read, when Paul says everything is lawful for me, he's most likely here quoting one of the favorite Corinthian sayings right back to them. Uh, Now, throughout history, this has been called antinomianism, and that word simply means lawlessness. So lawlessness or antinomianism is a pseudo-Christian philosophy or theology that takes part of the Bible and ignores the rest. Antinomianists love the passages in Scripture that tell us that we've been delivered from the law and that the law was but our schoolmaster to Christ, but now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the law. But antinomianists conveniently ignore other passages, such as Romans 7, where we're told that the law is spiritual and that the law is capable of pointing out sin, yet comes without the power of changing the heart. What we need is the Spirit to do what God commands. Antinomianists, rather than being thankful for the law's role in leading us to long for grace, simply want the freedom to live a lawless life. They love to say, all things are lawful for me. After all, I've been delivered from the law. Now, as far as it goes, the saying, all things are lawful for me, might have been a good saying in a certain restricted sense. 
But given the permissiveness of Corinthian society and given the fact of a sex-saturated society with 1,000 sacred temple prostitutes parading that city constantly and given the harm that this did to people and their families and given the diseases that get spread through sexual permissiveness, well, you can imagine where they went with that saying. That might have been a helpful statement if it had been applied to those areas where Christian freedom is granted rather than to be used to apply to all things. So let's be clear. First of all, Paul was right. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free, and Christ freed us so that we might be and act like free men and women. Christ wants us to be free, which means the ability to act however we want to and to be freed from constant condemnation and fear. See, I love what Augustine said about the secret of freedom. Augustine said, love God and do whatever you want. Now, of course, Augustine meant by that that when the first of all of our loves is Christ and his will, then a great expanse of freedom opens up to us. And the Corinthians, I think, would have said, well, amen to that. But think of this. A lot of people begin by acting in freedom and then wind up in slavery. Think, for instance, of the man who is a hopeless drug addict. I mean, at one point in time, he started out in freedom. He freely chose his first encounter with that hallucinogenic drug. But now, an addiction controls his flesh then is greater than his will. And when he wants to freely say no to the drug, he finds that he can't. For the desire of his flesh now overrides his free will, and he can't escape this monstrous master. He has become a slave. Or think of the person who says, you know, I can snack all I want at night. And now they're enslaved to food. It's it's that way for a lot of different behaviors and choices. The first choice is truly a free choice, but after that comes a lot of actions that have absolutely no bearing on freedom at all. So what Paul does is share with the Corinthians who love the saying, all things are lawful, to help them see a principle greater than that. And that, by the way, relates to us in our day as well. And so consider from 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, two principles of enduring freedom. First, all Christians who want to remain free must ask the question, how is what I'm doing beneficial? All things are lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Paul is getting at something I hope we don't miss. Enduring freedom is not doing whatever comes into my head or doing whatever I feel an impulse to do. Real freedom comes out of actions that are deliberate, that require thought. You're not free until you can choose deliberately and not impulsively. Now then think about this. Too many people, when choosing to do something, something that might be questionable, begin by asking this question. Well, what's wrong with it? Or what's wrong with that? Now, let's be clear. That's the wrong approach to living life well, an approach that I would call the negative approach. As long as they can convince themselves that no harm is done, they feel that they can go forward. It's the approach that says, how much can I get away with? But Paul says that enduring freedom begins by asking the question, what's right with it? What good will it do? And by good, we need to ask the question of eternal good. See, I know that smoking a joint will make you feel good in the short term, but what eternal good will this have on me? How will this shape my life to become the kind of man or a woman who is constantly experiencing a transformation into the life of holiness? Now, the second question is as important as the first. Again, from verse 12, 
All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Here then is the second question for all Christians who truly want to be free. Will my decisions end up mastering me? Let me tell you about my glasses. You know, for many years now, I have worn glasses that don't have a frame. I like them because they're so light, and in fact, the metal on my glasses are fascinating. You know, on the one hand, it looks so flimsy, and that's because it's called memory metal. That means if you bend it, you can put it in boiling water, and the metal will bend back to its original shape. I think it's kind of cool, but I haven't ever tried it. But that's an illustration of the flesh. Through what you do, you develop habits and patterns of behavior. Repeated actions begin to form, and after a little while, even though you might not want to, your flesh rebels against your will, and the pattern repeats itself, and in the end, you're not free at all. So, for example, let's say that when you're young, you learn to use profanity. I mean, first when you're angry, and then when you try to look tough and cool, and then you just simply insert it into your conversation for no reason at all. Let's say that you're introduced into polite company, and then you find yourself using profanity, and you say, oops, but then you use it again, and one day you decide you're going to stop using it entirely, only to find out to your own horror that you can't. It's mastered you. It controls your speech. A habitual pattern of enslavement has begun. And you might say to yourself, well, I'm not going to say the F-bomb anymore. But as soon as heat is applied and pressure and criticism and disappointment and anger, the flesh reverts to its old pattern and simply acts according to its own will rather than our own, and you're no longer free. And that's the flesh. It's a repeated pattern of behavior outside of the control of our will, and it robs us of freedom and the ability to act and do and say anything we want to. Now, this principle of the mastery of the flesh over the will is especially pronounced when it comes to sex, sexual act, sexual desire, sexual perversion, sexual choices, sexual expressions. All of this can and does take away human freedom. It can soon become the case that your sexual choices are no longer choices at all, but rather the expression of the complete domination of the flesh over the will. And of course, in confusion to what's really going on, some people mistakenly begin to believe that they were born this way and therefore they can't help themselves. But in every way, they're no longer free, but they're slaves. There's no question that we as Christians are called to freedom. But first, we must put Christ above all things. And let's start living our lives, making our decisions based on what's right with what I'm about to do. More from Dr. Neufeld next. To suggest Back to the Bible Canada is blessed with faithful ministry friends that stand with us is an understatement. Daily, we receive words of encouragement, incredible testimonies, often accompanied by gracious gifts of support. In June, a group of friends came together to offer a match pledge of $75,000 toward our fiscal year-end campaign. We're thrilled to celebrate the result of that campaign, but also share that the same group has provided an additional $75,000 match pledge for July to ensure we begin a new year of ministry strong. So again, for July, every gift you give is matched dollar for dollar up to $75,000. Whether you're a regular giver or considering giving for the first time, what a great opportunity to maximize your donation. Join us this month in support of our $75,000 match campaign by calling one 800 
1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's talk about enduring freedom and the use of our bodies. We turn to Paul's discussion about the nature of human freedom and how the body becomes the place where the greatest warfare over human freedom is waged. I'm reading 1 Corinthians 6.13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, here now, Paul puts his finger on the second favorite Corinthian saying. The first was, all things are lawful, and the second is that the body has a limited purpose. Now, it's not possible to understand this text without understanding what Corinthian culture believed about the body. Remember that many in the church of Corinth had not settled the issue of Greek philosophy, and they were attracted to it. The Greeks saw what was called dualism between the material and the spiritual world. See, many ancient Greek philosophers argued that the human body was only a kind of a prison house for the soul. When the body died, then and finally then, the soul would be released and finally free. And so out of this kind of thinking came a very low view of the human body. For some ancient Greeks, the body was to be despised, and so they believed that the body was an enemy of true spirituality. And by the way, that's probably the explanation for 1 Corinthians 15, where some in Corinth claimed that there was no resurrection of the dead. What they likely meant by that is that they denied the resurrection of the body. Now, that was the philosophy and the theology, but the ancient Greeks worked that out in some very practical ways. One group felt that since the body was evil, that one should deny the body of everything. And so they lived a life of rigid denial and asceticism. And others argued that since the body was so insignificant to the true life of the spirit, it didn't much matter what the body did, just give the body what it wants, and that has no effect on the soul or the spirit. And hence the saying, food for the body and the body for food. It's only bodily things, that's all. Now, out of that came another idea. If the body desires sex, simply give it what it needs. That has no bearing on your spiritual life. And interestingly enough, for us who are reading this text 2,000 years later, isn't it amazing how contemporary this attitude is? There are Christians who actually have this kind of dualism. A young man is living with his girlfriend out of wedlock and engaged in sexual relations outside of the covenant of marriage But he reasons to himself that he has a sexual urge, and that's not a reflection of the fact that he truly loves the Lord. And that was surely the thought system. And so Paul takes the basic principles of enduring freedom and applies these principles to our bodies. And here's what he says. First, my body was created for a purpose. Look again at the latter half of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Let me put it another way. Your body is an instrument by which you worship God. Now, let me try to unpack that. When we come into worship, let's say in your local church, you'll notice how often you utilize your body. You may clap your hands. Perhaps you raise your hands in the church you attend. Maybe you bow your head. Perhaps you go to a church with kneeling benches where you bend your knee, all as bodily signs of reverence. 
That's one of the reasons we show little children that they should fold their hands and, and bow their heads and close their eyes. We're doing all of those things to show them how to use the body to express worship. But there's so much more to it than that. I may use my body to physical labor, my, my brain to think, my arms to hug, my, my tongue to encourage, my eyes to experience beauty, my, my ears to listen to others and, and experience the wonder of sound. And all of that, if done rightly, is worship. I can learn that my body, in its every expression, is to be worship to God. My body was created for a purpose, and that purpose is to bring glory to God in literally hundreds and even thousands of ways. Now, if you don't think me too explicit, the very act of lovemaking in the covenant of marriage is an expression of your bodily embrace of the other. It is a physical act of expressing bodily commitment, delight, and communion with the other. And in that act, we express our submission to the way in which God designed our bodies. They were designed to express lifelong fidelity and also the bodily means whereby the next generation might be created, find life, and be raised according to the precepts of God. And all this was intended in terms of the way in which the body is used for the Lord. We use our body to honor Him. Now, having said that, Paul gives us the next principle regarding the body. My body is a part of God's eternal design. Notice, not like the Greek philosophers, look at verses 14 and 15. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, please remember that what Paul is expressing here is something that is unique about the Christian faith. See, all manner of religions speak about life after death, but the Christian faith has something unique to say. You know, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he was only brought back to this old life, only to go through struggle and more illness and finally death again. But with the resurrection of Jesus comes something altogether unheard of. It is as if things that were reserved for the last day already started to tumble into our day. The future has invaded the present. Christ was raised with a real body. He was touched, he was seen, he was heard, he ate. Indeed, he even had the same wounds, but he could walk through a closed door, and yet he had a real and physical body. And there is a continuity slash discontinuity in the raised body of Jesus. See, on the one hand, it was his old body with, with arms and legs, and that he looked like he always did and bore the wounds of his old body. But on the other hand, it was a new body that was not subject to death and aging and disease and pain and sickness, but belonged to a new order, a new reality. Listen to what Jesus said about his body in John chapter 2, verses 19 and then verse 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. In other words, his body at his resurrection was still his body, and yet it was a body as bodies were intended to be. And the Bible teaches an afterlife that's intensely physical with real sights and sounds and smells. See, I believe in a heaven where there will be laughter and, and running with real legs and conversation with real mouths and adventure. I think the most beautiful, stunning scenes in nature on this earth are nowhere near the, the physical, yes, the physical beauty of heaven. I believe in a heaven where people will have talents and abilities just like on earth. See, I believe in a heaven which is populated by bodies, and yes, these bodies, but yet they are different at the same time. 
The body that shall be is a body that will not have two things that this present body has. Now, first of all, the future body will never struggle with the flesh. You know, all repeated cycles in the body to come will be good. Not one temptation will pull me away from the freedom that I will have. And secondly, the new body will, of course, as we all know, have no imperfections. There, there will be no disease. There will be no handicaps. No death will ever invade the body to come. I will be able to learn without hindrance, and I will be able to worship without distraction. And this is the key. My body, not just my spirit and soul, but my body is a part of God's eternal design. I should keep that in mind. And therefore, I must learn that the approach that I must bear when I, as a Christian, think about my body is that my body has a mystical, even a sacred dimension. Listen to the first half of verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? See, once I embrace this reality, I must know that the use of my body is given over to the use of Christ, for he is master of my body. And so for the believer, there is no greater freedom than to choose to use our bodies as an expression of the glory of Christ. So let's get back to our theme of understanding Christian freedom. I am not free until I can dictate to my body how to serve Christ and to be free from having my body dictate to me what it wants. That's called, by the way, in Scripture, self-control. Until my body is my slave and not the other way around, I will never be free. Hence, until my sexual urges are under Christ's lordship, I am a slave. And a slave is never acceptable to the new nature of the believer. So please join me tomorrow as we complete that thought and show how the body can be used fully for the glory of God at all times. To Him be the glory. John, freedom to be like Christ. I think that's what you're saying, but is it what you're saying? Like, what does it mean to be free? Is it free to do anything we want to do or what is it? Yeah, you know what? I, I, for a while, I used to be afraid to say that, but now I really do say it. Freedom is to be free to do what you want to do. Now, if you're born again, you're a believer in Christ, I'll tell you what you want to do. You want to worship and love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what you want more than anything else. That's the heart that you received when you were born again. The problem is that the body and the flesh militate against that. And so what self-control does, it makes our body our slave. That's Paul's words, rather than the other way around. And the problem is too many believers have allowed themselves to become the slaves of the flesh. And we'll learn more together as Dr. Neufeld continues in our series right here at Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. On behalf of all of us at Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, we want to send out our heartfelt thanks for your financial support in June during our fiscal year end. Your gifts have meant so much in helping us finish well and provide a strong foundation for the months ahead. Your gifts make this daily Bible teaching program possible. It allows us to air right across Canada. It provides the resources to sustain our podcast, 
mobile application to support the ministries of Laugh Again and our young adult program In Doubt and our international programming. None of these ministries of Back to the Bible Canada would be possible without you and your commitment to Bible teaching. So once again, thank you for standing with us and becoming an essential part of our ministry team. For more information about this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.